0: Hey Anchor Community, Pastor Brian here and I'm so excited to be starting our new teaching series, Unlikely. We're looking at the life of David and how he was an unlikely king and today we're going to be looking at how he was young but he was anointed, this tension in the life of David that he was young but he was anointed. Years ago, uh, when we first started planting Anchor, my wife and and kids, we had just moved to Tacoma, and we were in this building that we had kind of inherited to plant Anchor from, but really no one knew about us. We didn't have a congregation, and it was me and Matt, the other person we were serving, we doing the Anchor thing together. It was the summer there, the first bit of us being there. And I remember sitting in this kind of empty building, you could hear ourselves echo, you know, every time we talked or said something, it felt vacuous. And we saw, you know, evidence of this deferred maintenance all around us. things that need to be updated cosmetically or just with the infrastructure. And we we're dealing with this weight of this reality of planting a church in this empty building that needed all this work. It felt overwhelming. And I remember this big truck pulled up one time and I didn't recognize it. And uh, a guy got out of the truck, knocked on the door, didn't know who he was. He introduced himself. He had a southern accent. I don't know if that matters, but it's in my memory. And he described himself as a pastor. And I was like looking for people to connect with and network with. This was great. Yeah, I'll go to lunch with you. I don't know who you are. I'll hop in your truck. We'll grab a bite. And uh, so we started driving to the Thai restaurant that he wanted to go eat at, and it turned out that it was closed, and I was running out of time, so we went tried to go to another place, but it was too far away. And at one point, I looked at him and I said, so uh, what did you have in mind when you pulled in here? Like, is there anything on your mind that you wanted to talk about, you know, that caused you to kind of pull up to this empty-looking church on this particular day, and he said, "Yeah, actually, Brian. You know, I I had this idea. You know, I, you know, my church is busting at the seams. We we keep on adding services, and people keep coming. It's growing, and, and and we need a bigger building. And I I I wondered, you know, if we could just trade buildings. I mean, you don't have a congregation. You don't need this space. Why would you? Why would you need? Why would you need all this space? Look at you. You don't got any people that are really a part of your thing. And uh, and I do. I, could we just trade?" <laughs> I remember taking, he said, can we take, can I give you a tour of my building? So we went on this tour of this building and I'm like, oh my gosh, Uh, I I, I don't think I would ever want to trade. And now I'm also wrestling with these insecurities. (laughs) I found myself for the rest of the day, you know, going back and forth between kind of being punchy, like, come on, give me a year, man. And then also dealing with these insecurities where I was counting myself out. Overwhelmed by the weight of the task counting myself out. Have you ever counted yourself out? This is the single mom or dad that's having a hard time imagining that there is a partner for them somewhere in the future. It's the young woman that senses a call to ministry but, but needs a mentor and is having a hard time imagining if there's even a place for her because she's a woman. This is the young adult that that wonders what faith can look like after suffering disillusionment, after a hard church experience, or it's the young family that can't imagine ever getting to the point where they're financially stable, much less generous. Have you ever counted yourself out? Have you ever counted yourself out? For those of us that have counted ourselves out, myself included, David is our guide. Because David's life tells us of one that the world would count out, but that God counted in. He was young, the world would count him out, but he was anointed, God counted him in. But to get to the story, we have to look at the backstory of David, because uh, there's this setting where the David story happens, where there's 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 a backstory that we have to understand, and it Takes place in First Samuel. If you're looking in the Hebrew Bible, it's just the Book of Samuel. And Samuel, the name of which the book is, just, you know, given, um, is the central character, especially in the first book. He's the leader of Israel. He's born of of Hannah and dedicated to the temple, grows up in the temple. His life is filled with service to God at a young age. God calls him uh, audibly to serve him in a significant way of leadership over Israel. And this mantle just rests on his shoulders and he steps into the role. And at a certain point, Israel is looking around at their neighbors. They're seeing that their neighbors have these kings that seem to offer a level of protection that Israel doesn't have. And so they start going to Samuel and saying, Samuel, can we get a king like our neighboring countries, our neighboring peoples? That will offer a level of of protection we feel. And Samuel is grieved by this and he goes to god and says god you are their king but they're wanting a, like a like a like a person to be their king and god allows it and so they have this essentially uh, an ancient near eastern election saul is this strong tall man uh, visibly you know signifying success by his presence and he gets picked to be this king, and he's victorious, and he's strong, and he is the king. But what we find is is that though he's strong and victorious in battle, he is also disobedient and hasty and frenetic. And so the mantle of kingship is removed from him. So we we see this, this lesson start to show up is that God actually doesn't need your strength. He just needs your obedience. So this is where we pick the story up. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1, and it says there, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? It's interesting because in 1 Samuel 15, what Saul, uh, Saul and Samuel, they have this tough interaction and Samuel is fierce with, with Saul for disobeying God. But now as Samuel is before God, just he and God, it's clear that Samuel is not just a fierce and angry towards Saul, but he's also grieving. He's grieving and, and it takes God to say, okay, it's time to move on. Fill your horn with oil. Be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one that I indicate. This is important. It's it's not just looking at who's the best fit, who has the metrics, who has the stats, who has the tells towards success, but the Lord is going to indicate someone. Samuel replied, Or Samuel did what the Lord said. And when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled. And when they met, they asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. And then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they arrived, Samuel said to Eliab and thought, or Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands before me. Eliab probably is the oldest And you can think of it, seems like another Saul situation. Here's a strong guy. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't consider his outward appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And then Jesse called to Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said to them, uh, the Lord has not chosen that one either. And Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. It gets to et cetera, et cetera in the Hebrew for uh, before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, he goes up to Jesse and he says, hey, are there any others? Where is the other one? There has to be one more. And they're still the youngest. Jesse answered, he's tending sheep. We didn't even invite him. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. And he was glowing with health and fine appearance and handsome features. And the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. So David was unlikely, but he was anointed. He was young, but he was anointed. And we have to ask the question, okay, so what are the qualities? Like if God looks at the heart, what did God see when he saw David? The first thing we just have to look at and own and and understand is that from our visible, from from all of the things that we would normally use to assess kingship, he was unlikely. David was unlikely. As we saw, he was the youngest. And he was not even there. (laughs) He He didn't even apply for the job. He didn't even get the invitation to apply for the job. There is, There's these qualities of, of unlikeliness that are just so obvious they don't even really require much thought or pointing to it. And also Samuel had to do a double take. Samuel, trained in what good leadership looks like, looks at Leah because goes, surely this is the one. Surely this is the likely one. And the Lord says, no. Now, it's interesting. In verses 1 and 7, there's this repeated theme of of what God sees that's important to draw out. In verse 1, it says, I'm sending you to Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king, one of Jesse's sons to be king. But the word chosen there in the Hebrew is ra'ah, which means to see. One Bible translator uh, translates this as, For I have seen for myself a king among Jesse's family. Everybody saw just a little shepherd boy. David sees a king in him. God sees a king in David. God God looks into the heart and sees the qualities of a king. Unlikely from our angle of gaze, but likely from God's angle of gaze, he sees a king. And then in verse 7, God says... To Samuel, Sam, take Samuel aside in the midst of this process of anointing the next king. God says, no, 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 come over here. Don't consider his appearance or his height. Don't look at his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at what is the Lord looking at? What is the Lord seeing? The Lord looks at the the things people do not looks at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So the, the God sees a king in Jesse's family and he sees a heart in David that is a heart of a king. The world sees a kid and God sees a king. Everyone is calling David unlikely, but God sees a king in him. This is not just a a Samuel-David story. It's not just an Old Testament story story. It's a biblical theme. It's the way that God engages uh, with the world. He sees past the veneer. He sees past the Instagram filter. He sees past the followers and the platform and to the heart. He sees at the core this is all through Scripture. In fact, Paul writing to the Corinthian church, the Corinthians kind of baptized on a Corinthian understanding of power. That power was demonstrated through might, through ability, through force, through agenda, through fine-sounding words. Paul is deconstructing that, and in verses or chapter, sorry, First Corinthians one chapter, uh, sorry, First Corinthians chapter one, verses twenty-six to twenty-eight. Paul says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. They're they're trending towards the Corinthian approach to power, and Paul is realigning them with the way of Jesus and deconstructing the Corinthian sense of power. He says, think of what you were when you were called, And not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. You were all out in the field disqualified from the opportunity. Nobody invited you to even consider being anointed as King Paul, saying, hey, you didn't even get invited to apply, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God Chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. If we're to ask, like, what does God see? Uh, What does God see when he sees David? David. What are the qualities at the heart of David? The first thing we just have to get get comfortable with is not looking just with our eyes, but 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 looking into the heart and recognizing that God doesn't need our strength, He needs our willingness. That's because it's it's so easy to go with the Corinthians, to slip into a Corinthian mode of operating or a Saul mode of operating. It's almost like our default settings. I remember years ago, uh, I had a 1974 Volkswagen bus. It was Robin's egg blue, and I had these gold roof racks on it, and I had just washed and waxed it, and it was summer. And it was Instagram worthy, instant platform right there, baby. Just take a picture of it. Hashtag Volkswagen van life, you're done. And I remember I was driving up to a coffee shop and and i saw some people that i wanted to if i was to be honest i saw some people that i wanted to impress have you ever had that experience you see some people that you want to impress and i was so glad that my van was looking good and the sun was right reflecting on the van i pulled up to the coffee shop got out of the van quickly probably put my sunglasses on nodded i'm like what hey hey you know, as I walked in to get a coffee, got the coffee, gave him a what, what, you know, and then hot back in my van, and then to my humiliation, to my humiliation, my van, my bus, uh, all of a sudden it, it 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 didn't have any gas in it it coasted, unbeknownst to me, had coasted into the parking lot on fumes, and, and there was no gas in the bus, and now I, these people that I wanted to impress are still there on the patio looking at me, furiously trying to start my car, feeling the humility just and, hum, and hum, uh, the hum- humbleness just kind of drench over me as I have to call a friend. He brings a gas can in, we fill it up, they're watching the whole thing, and then I drive drive off as quick as my Volkswagen bus will take me. You see, Saul-like aspirations send you towards a Saul-like fall. You can't get to blessing by the way of Saul. You cannot reach blessing by the way of Saul. The way of Saul leads you to a Saul-like fall. Verse uh, 15, or chapter 15, verse 28, Samuel's talking to Saul, and he says this, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. This rests on the disobedience and the arrogance of Saul that he would rest on his strength forgetful of God. I love this picture of and God has given the kingdom to one better than you. Who's the one that's better? It's a little boy in a field. This is the God we, we serve. That he, he doesn't need the muscles and the strength and the acumen and the bank account. He needs our willingness. I think that the first thing if we're to look at and understand what it looks like to track with David is that we have to fall in love with the foolishness of God. We have to appreciate the foolishness of God that he would call those the world calls unlikely, likely. This is good news for us because when you look in the mirror, it means you don't get to disqualify yourself based upon what you see. And when you open your bank account and when you, when you look at your calendar, you don't get to disqualify yourself based on what you see. And this is good news for others because it's not just in the mirror, but it's in your meetings, it's in your interactions. You don't get to disqualify someone based upon what they see. Because God looks at the heart and if we're to track with the way of David and, the, and David's God, then we have to appreciate the foolishness of God and that everyone we interact with, including ourselves, has the potential to be a king or a queen. The next thing we, we, we note at the core, at the heart of David, is that he was faithful. Think about it. You know, he's probably aware that the prophet has come to town. It's major headlines. The national prophet has come to Bethlehem. The word is out. My brothers are running towards getting in line and angling for opportunity, kind of sticking their chest out and and kind of practicing their sword moves. And where's David? He's staying where he was called to stay. The world is abuzz with the potential that they might be the next King, even though there's like secretness and, and, but but there's excitement and anticipation about what it means that Samuel's there and David stays in the field. He was faithful. There's two types of people, really, actually, there's a spectrum. On one end, you could say there's the frenetic person, the frenetic person. Frenetic means essentially that you're ping-ponging back and forth uh, all around. You don't have a stable sense of identity. That there's this anxious energy that you carry within yourself because your your ego is rudderless. Your sense of self is disconnected from from a a real sense of identity. There's the frenetic person. And then there's the faithful person. Now that The thing about the faithful person is that there has to be a high level of confidence and internal knowledge of who they are to stay faithful when everybody's angling for opportunity pressing in a little bit on the frenetic person is the frenetic, frenetic person is fixated on problems and forgetful of god and bounces back between toxic ambition pushing others aside self disqualification pushing themselves aside and prayerless management how can i fix and solve this problem irrespective of asking and, and engaging in my relationship with god toxic ambition self disqualification and prayerless management. This is the picture of Saul again. In Saul, or sorry, in Samuel chapter 13, Saul's in a situation where he's waiting for Samuel to come to him so that they can perform a sacrifice, so that they can battle and win victoriously with the Philistines. But everybody is watching the Philistine army grow and grow, and Samuel's nowhere to be seen. And Saul is desperate as he sees his men starting to scatter and disperse. And so he takes the matter into his own hands. Though he's not um, in the role of a priest, he performs the sacrifice. And then right there, and at the midst of it, Samuel shows up and asks, what are you doing? You couldn't wait. You couldn't be faithful. You had to try to solve the problem according to your own rational abilities. You you, you couldn't be faithful. Samuel rebukes Saul. And at the end of the situation, it's fascinating, in verse 15, Saul says, Where it says that Saul counted the men that were with him. You see, He's shoring up. He's like, okay, who's still with me? He's trying to shore up his strength to protect himself because he sees that the mantle of kingship might be taken away even now. And so he's surmising and surveying who's still with me. Who do I have on my side? How can I protect myself? There's this frenetic energy of management and self-protection all happening here. And then in chapter 15, he disobeys again. He's asked to to wipe out all the people that are opposing Israel. He doesn't. And and then when Samuel comes, he tries to rationalize it and minimize it. Again, there's this frenetic, anxious energy that he's carrying within himself. Toxic ambition, self-disqualification, prayerless management. And then... uh, Contrastingly, again, there's David, faithful. You know, the the one thing that God can always use is faithfulness. (laughs) God will always use faithfulness. He doesn't need much more than that. You think, the things that David learns in the midst of his faithfulness is how to sling a stone. There in the pastures and the hillsides, he learns how to sling a stone against a bear and against a lion, and he learns how to kill a giant that he hasn't met yet. God will use your faithfulness. God God is preparing David for a future that David can't imagine. God is preparing you for a future that you can't imagine. And the journey is to to not drip into, to not slip into frenetic energy and toxic ambition, self-disqualification, prayerless management, to be faithful where you're at. And because, God, there's, there's slings and stones that you have in your hand that will help you kill giants that you haven't met yet. David is learning how to shepherd. He's learning leadership lessons. The thing about shepherding is is that there's this gentle leadership of a shepherd, of taking the shepherd's staff and kind of hemming in the sheep so that they don't wander and gently leading them forward and then protecting them. David is learning something about leadership, about leading a people that are wandering and, and, and confused and in need of leadership that will surface into an area. He has no idea how that will surface, but God is preparing him. God will always use faithfulness. Where you are at right now is the training ground for where God will take you next. It, there's no way around it. Where you are at right now is the training ground for where God will take you next. And your willingness to be faithful demonstrate your, your readiness for advancement. Your willingness to be faithful demonstrates your readiness for advancement. God will not advance you if your heart is not willing to obey and be faithful where you're at. You might find yourself advancement, but it's a Saul-like advancement. And when there's a Saul-like advancement, there is oftentimes a Saul-like fall. So he was unlikely, yes. Yes. He was faithful and he was anointed. You can think of that moment where he's brought in. His brothers are watching. Samuel pours the oil over this young child. Jesse is astounded. That's my, like, really? He has new eyes for understanding David. Probably can see Oh, that's the mark of a king. (sighs) But though he was anointed, he wasn't transported. Gene Edwards, in his book, The Three Kings, says, quite a day for that young man, wouldn't you say? Then do you find it strange that this remarkable event? led the young man not to the throne, but to a decade of hellish agony and suffering. On that day, David was enrolled not into the lineage of royalty, but into the school of brokenness. You see, every victory has an origin story. Every story of greatness has a story of desert His anointing did not keep him from having to endure. We have grown too comfortable with fast forward. It's not the point of the YouTube video I want to watch. Fast forward. Here's the selected clip that's most relevant for you. Watch that. And so we've taken that attitude into our life. And in seasons of challenge and desert, we say fast forward forward but the problem is there is no fast forward in real life and so we try to slip into the frenetic claiming something we're not ready for but God wants us to be aware of two things that he will anoint us but he won't transport us There's this verse in verse 13 says the spirit of the Lord was upon him or came upon him. Robert Alter, the Hebrew scholar, translates it as the spirit of the Lord gripped him. I love that. Because there is this sense where David, though he's going to step into a a story where he's going to have spears thrown at him by Saul, he's going to have to fight a... A, a giant, he'll be hiding in caves, writing poetry of, of wonder and abandonment, asking God, where are you? There's these seasons of desert that are, he is right at the beginning of. He's not stepping into a throne. He's stepping into a pain and challenge. Though there is that, he has this anointing and in the middle of all the desert, the spirit of the Lord is gripping him. It's gripping him. I am convinced that this is the place where spiritual growth happens. And spiritual growth will not happen unless we are aware of two things. That God is with us and he won't transport us. There is something that happens when it feels like life is not fast-forwardable, but it's in slow motion. And it's painfully slow. There is something that happens there that will never happen anywhere else. There is heart work there that that will not happen anywhere else. And all we need in that place is to continue to be willing. God, this is painful. But I'm still willing. I know that I might feel crushed, but I know I'm not abandoned. I know I'm struck down, but I'm not destroyed because your spirit, God, is gripping me. This is the word for us. In the midst of whatever season that you might find yourself in, hold on to the truth that because of the Spirit of God and the work of Christ, that God doesn't see you primarily in light of your sin or primarily in light of your giftedness. God sees you primarily in light of his Son. Because God sees you primarily in light of his Son, his Spirit is on you. It is gripping you, even in a desert season. And in that desert season, God does work that he won't do anywhere else because He setting you up for next. And unless you learn what you're supposed to learn in the slow motion, you'll never see the advancement. Take courage in this. That that is the place where growth happens. And growth is happening if you're in that place. Even if you can't see it. Just as it takes a while for a green shoots to show up. In gardens. And flower beds there's still growth happening take courage from this too that just as if just as Samuel passed over the likelies God passes over the likelies those that rest on strength those that rest on ability those that uh, rest on platform, those that rest on posture and looks. God passes over the likelies and pours out his spirit on the unlikelies. The cross is the greatest picture of this. Where Jesus Christ offered all, us unlikelies, forgiveness and reconciliation with the holy God and all we have to do is admit that we are unlikely. That's the invitation to you. Is to come to a place to, with God, and say, God, I'm unlikely. I'm unlikely. I want to be faithful, and I'm trusting Your anointing in my life, even in the slow motion seasons when I want to fast forward. And it's in that place. Where God will do great work. Next, we're slipping into, we're going into a call and response prayer. We want you to engage with that, to let the words you see uh, be the words from your heart, from them to align with your heart cry. And for us to go out into the week knowing that whatever happens If we are with Jesus, the Spirit of God is gripping us.